Welcome to Golden Beer Talks. Thank you for coming. We have a really good evening here ahead of us. We want to start and end with gratitude uh, for our friends here at the Windy Saddle, first of all. They're hustling around taking care of us. We're also grateful to GoldenToday.com for promoting our events and supporting our community. If you aren't familiar, I would recommend checking it out, GoldenToday.com. <laughs> We're also grateful this month to our brewery, which is Mountain Toad, and our deputy chief of mission on, uh, in terms of beer ambassadorial activities is going to come up here and talk a little bit about the beer we have tonight and probably some other brewery-related info. Here comes Barb, our deputy chief of mission. But first, a word from our sponsor, DM. Okay. Um, I'm here to talk about the beer in my husband's place, and he knows a lot more about beer than I do. So I'll just tell you that the Beer de Mars, or Beer de Mars, or however you say that, is uh, 6.4% alcohol by volume and 17 IBUs, and that's international bitterness units, um, known as Mars to the Romans, the gar of God of war and agriculture lends his name to this farmhouse ale brewed in March with low bitterness, which emphasizes the malt and sweet notes of honey. This French red ale is malty and sweet. French ale yeast creates a clean beer and complements the malt flavors present in the beer. It is perfectly suited for the transition from the cold months of winter to the fertile days of spring. <laughs> and I guess it worked. Um, the other one is Mount Zion IPA. It's 7.5% alcohol by volume, 80 bitterness units. The other one was 17. Uh, brewed in the shadow of the mighty Mount, mighty Mount Zion, which overlooks Golden, our flagship IPA pulls together the time-honored West Coast top profile of Centennial Cascade, Simcoe Warrior, and Amarillo hops. This ale is strong in citrus, pine, and stone fruit flavors. So, getting on to beer-related events. Um, New Terrain Brewing is having music by the Mesa every Thursday night from 6 to 9 for the rest of the summer through at least the first week in September. Barrels and Bottles has live music periodically, but it's hard for me to figure out when it is. The only thing they have on their calendar right now is July 7th. They're going to have live music. Uh, Mountain Toad Brewing. Um, tomorrow they're going to tap a new batch of Black Lemon Saison which is aged in a Mexican Reposoto barrel, which they get from State 38 Distillery. Um, also on Wednesday, June 20th, they're going to have free, a uh, free fly tying session, which they do with Golden River Sports, which is just across the street from them. And um, the two of them seem to hang out together a lot. I know they have joint Christmas parties. Uh, Golden City Brewery is going to be at a big event they're going to have at Dinosaur Ridge this Saturday, which is called Brontos and Brews. It's going to run from 10 till 4, and they're going to have a carnival with dinosaur-themed rides. But more importantly to this crowd, from 1 to 4, they're going to have a beer garden. Enjoy a beer from one of multiple Colorado breweries. Grab a bite from the food trucks. Enjoy live music. And this is the most interesting part in my opinion. They're going to try and beat a Guinness Book of World Records 
record for the most people in dinosaur costumes in a photograph. So if you own a dinosaur costume or know where to get one, show up at noon at Dinosaur Ridge and be in the photo. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I have a whole flyer about it, so I'll hand it to you. What time? The carnival runs from 10 till 4. The beer garden runs from 1 till 4. Beer garden. Yeah, yeah. And um, I just thought I'd mention a few other alcohol-related things. I'm not sure if everyone knew this, but Golden is now up to four craft distilleries. We have State 38, which has been around for a number of years, and uh, Golden Moon, which you're probably aware of. It's also been around for several years, and they're the ones who are um, the owners of the Golden Moon Speakeasy, which is kind of behind and to the right, my right, of this. Uh, but in addition, we have a place called Ski Bum Rum and one called Venya Vodka. And um, State 38 and Ski Bum Rum are both over in that industrial park that's kind of um, west of Home Depot. And Golden Moon and Venya Vodka are in the industrial park on the other side of Colfax. Um, and in fact, I discovered that Vodka Place because they are next to uh, Grateful Bread, which is a wholesale, wholesale bakery that's open once a week to sell retail. For the most part, they sell to restaurants. And uh, this vodka place decided they should take advantage of all the traffic going to Grateful Bread and um, have... I know. I'm going to get to that. And have um, their tasting room open during Grateful Bread's hours on Saturday. However, to their misfortune, um, I saw last week that Grateful Bread can't get enough staff to keep their um, bakery room open on Saturdays anymore. And so until further notice, they're not open. And I'm not sure whether the tasting room for the vodka place is. Final word on alcohol-related things. The um, Colorado Plus Cidery and Pub in the old laundromat across the street um, is supposed to open this Friday pending of all their final inspections, which I think they were having today. And they're going to be open on Friday from 11 a.m. till 10 p.m. And that's it from Beer Alcohol News. And now I introduce Karen Smith, thank you, who's going to introduce our speaker. Okay, so the main event... Um, I get the honor of introducing our speaker tonight. It's Dr. Carla Clem, and she is uh, going to speak to us about amazing discoveries of archaeology in Africa. She's an assistant professor adjunct at CU Boulder, earned her Ph.D. at UT Austin, and did a postdoc at Washington University. And she's currently teaching archaeology courses at both CU and DU and has taught at some other places as well. Uh, she's been working in Africa since 2007 and is currently on a multinational project in Botswana. And uh, the talk she's going to give tonight, I believe, is going to talk about the emergence, this is fascinating to me, the emergence of inequality, urbanization, and climate change as the Africa interior became linked to the Middle East and Asia through trade routes. And if I didn't get that right, Carla can correct me because she's going to come up now. Thank you, Carla. Yeah, 
Thanks much. And thanks much to the organizers of Golden Beer Talks for inviting me. And thanks for all of you guys for choosing to spend your Tuesday evening. I am Carla. I am not another announcer. Um, and yeah, I'm going to be talking to you about African archaeology uh, here today, not just because it's something that I do, uh, but because I found it really interesting. Um, if anybody has any sense of African history from those old world prehistory classes you took in middle school, you may be scratching your heads and say Egypt. I mean, I grew up, you know, only really thinking about Africa in terms of things that came before as either one human evolution or um, uh, to nothing really until colonialism. And so um, as an archaeologist who works in Africa, um, I've learned quite a great deal. And I'm looking forward to sharing a few of those stories here with you today. I won't just be talking about that. I'm going to share three short, short stories as well as a behind-the-scenes look at how archaeologists do their jobs because it seems like a whole bunch of stories we've cooked up, you know, one night over the campfire together. Um, and since I am in mines country, I want to give a head nod to the fact that we have a very sciencey crowd. So um, I will try to talk, talk you through a few of the techniques that I'm going to uh, reference here today. So without further ado, and in case you don't get the reference of what the heck Wakanda is, um, there's been a reboot of the Marvel Comics series for all of those like my um, uh, lovely husband in the crowd who are big comic book fans or comic smash punch superhero movie fans. Um, Black Panther was a great success and it has to do with a mythical African civilization. And it's actually modeled after some of the pre-colonial um, uh, African uh, cities and states um, uh, from the 15th century. So, Africa. Now, when, typically when we think about Africa, it's what we see, we, we don't really read about it very much, except maybe in the newspaper, maybe it's what we see on the news. Maybe one late night documentary when we want to see some zebras chasing some lions, you know, just to get back at them, right? So typically when we talk about Africa, we see it in a number of various tropes. One back, actually. Um, and misconceptions about Africa. Um, and these are things that, I mean, none of, none of us really think it's true, but this is a way that media typically portrays the continent of Africa. One is people will typically talk about Africa as Africa, as if it's a single country rather than an entire continent. Typically, when we see media portrayals, we see it in terms of all the lovely animals that there are. And when we talk about people, typically they're talked about in terms of maybe living in mud huts rather than cities with tens of millions of people across the continent. Um, we also get these narratives that Africa is filled, is defined by warfare and disease or that it can't feed itself. Um, again, it's a very large place with very specific historical trajectories in different areas where I work Botswana. Um, for those of you who have no idea where Botswana did before I worked there, I didn't. North of South Africa, west of Zimbabwe, it's a country the size of Texas or France, depending on your view of the world. I had to do my PhD in Texas. I'm not Texan originally. They think it's Texas. Uh, but only about 2 million people live there. So it's uh, mostly defined by the Kalahari Desert. It's a semi-scrub desert. Um, but the one trope that I really want to tackle today, and the one that I can speak to as an African archaeologist, is this idea that Africa is backwards, that perhaps it was left back in the Stone Age. Again, that nothing has really happened since humans left Africa. As Richard Leakey once famously said, we are all African 
because um, the origins of Homo sapiens came out of Africa, both along the Red Sea and along the Nile. Um, so I want to talk about this and talk about um, three case studies in pre-colonial Africa. First, again, Africa is not a country. Just to give you a, a quick sense of its immense size, not only can you fit the United States as well as Europe in Africa, you can throw in India, China, um, Argentina, and just for fun, why not throw in New Zealand? Just to get a, a sense of the geographic size. Again, very large place. Focus of my talk, though, is that Africa has a rich pre-colonial history that we don't often hear about. Part of the reason why I think that's important is because the ways we design ourselves and the ways that we see the world today is defined by our knowledge of past. In that schoolhouse rock reference, knowledge is power, right? And the ways we see ourselves Americans is linking up to the Greeks and the Romans, that idea of democracy. The ways that we see Africa and the way those tropes develop today are the, and, and impacts the way that we approach policies, approach refugees, approach many of the issues of Africa is defined by the ways of the knowledge that we have about Africa. And if we think that nothing exists and it's backwards, perhaps it's doomed to its own um, backwardness and marginality. Um, and I hope today to show that's not through. So I'm going to give you three quick, uh, three examples I'm going to run through today. So first, I'm going to take you back about 10,000 years. So again, if you are unable to see the projector, archaeologists are visual, so we love photos. I understand that it's still light outside. Some of you guys are far back. Don't worry. I'll talk you through it. You'll be just fine. Um, but what you're looking at here is in the central Sahara, in the country of Niger, you're looking at a, at a large rock art, um, uh, rock carving of um, over 50 feet long of a giant giraffe. This is, this is what Niger looks like today. So you have, there's no, in case you can't see it, there is nothing except for sand. It's hyper-arid Sahara. So as archaeologists, we're, um, we're surprised that we find not just rock carvings, but also rock art in places where there is no possible um, ability for humans to live in here at all. So archaeologists have looked in these areas around, um, around where those JS are and actually near what's now known as the site of Gobero Niger, thinking that perhaps this area has not always looked like it is. And this is your dinner topic tonight. In case you go home with nothing else, you could talk about that once 10,000 years ago that the Sahara was once green. Um, because archaeologists have worked with um, uh, satellite imagery to, um, to not just look at the desert, but to trace paleo lakes and paleo rivers, so ancient lakes and rivers that used to exist in the Sahara, combined with artifacts they found on the surface, things like stone tools and stone bowls, to discover that there was vast civilizations across, or there is a vast um, uh, settlement across the Sahara. So what happened? So about 10,000 years ago, actually skipping back to about 14,000 years ago, you're getting to the end of the last ice age, so the last glacial maximum from about 26,000 years ago until about 14,000 years ago. So as the Ice Age ends, about 14,000 years ago, you start having people that are living up in now today, Alaska, Russia, what's known as Beringia, 
coming into the North America for the first time. Over in Africa, as that, as that ice age lands and the earth is generally warming, you enter a period of time in Africa called the African Humid Period. Now, the African Humid Period is kind of cool because it's, it's um, linked up to long-term climatic processes, one called, uh, known as the Milankovitch Cycles. So that when the Earth goes around the sun, it doesn't do so in a perfect circular fashion. It does so in an elliptical orbit. But it doesn't always stay the same. Sometimes that orbit is more egg-shaped. Sometimes it's a little more rounded. And that happens on a scale of about every 100,000 years. It also tilts and wobbles, which means the North Pole changes, which means weather patterns change, which means how hot in the summer and cold in winter. Um, those vary as well over time. Now, this is different than anthropogenic climate change when you hear it on the news. That's happening at a decadal and a century scale. This is happening at the scale of tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of years. At the end of the last glacial maximum, forces combine to a point where um, what's known as the intertropical conversion zone, I promise you I'm almost done with climate, so sailors know this as the doldrums. It's where the north and the southern hemisphere winds meet. You get a lot of rain. That shifts northward. It shifts about 10 degrees northward. And as such, when you shift that rain system northwards, what is hyper-arid desert in the Sahara all of a sudden becomes savanna and grassy woodland. And as such, at the site of Gobero, we have um, originally with the first inhabitants, the Kiffians, we have... Um, uh, pottery, as well as on the far left side, we have um, barbed uh, fishing spears. Uh, right next to that, in the center, you can see a pendant carved out of um, hippo ivory, again, showing just how wet the Sahara was at that point in time, as well as the burials. And the burials that you see on the right, uh, the right side happen towards the end of this period. Um, this, is, uh, this is from another group that lived in the area. Um, this is one of the key parts of the Sahara research, is the fact that you have the first people with domesticated cattle and animals living near and around the Sahara. It's a cool fun fact about Africa. You've probably heard about the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East and wheat and barley being domesticated there. In Africa, it's cattle before crops. People domesticate animals before they domesticate plants. So this is some of the earliest domestication. And again, a fun dinner fact if you haven't heard it before. So archaeologists are learning new things all the time. This research has only taken place really in the last 10 years. It's a fun go home, Google Green Sahara. Um, I like it. It's a good story. Unfortunately, I do not work on this project. But I will work on the next two examples. So to move on. So by about six to 5,000 years ago, that African humid period starts ending. So once again, the Sahara starts drying up. So people can no longer live there. Except you have this great new technology, right? You have the ability to not just feed yourself more regularly, but you have the ability to feed large groups of people. People can live in larger settlements. And that's not something you keep a secret. That information spreads across communities. So about 5,000 years ago, thousands of miles away, in, in the country of Kenya, in northwest Kenya, around what is now Lake Turkana, um, uh, we start getting a number of archaeological sites that are commonly called the pillar sites. Which might not look much to those of you in the audience. They look like large stone circles. There are some people in there for scale, so they seem pretty big. It just looks like a big gravel dump. 
Um, but going back to the scale, each of those circles are sometimes up to 100 feet in diameter. Not only that, they're often surrounded by uh, basalt pillars, uh, six to eight feet tall in circles. And they're actually some of the earliest evidence for megalithic monuments in the world. So 5,000 years ago is really old. It's the first time you have uh, uh, ancient cities. Again, domestication is spreading throughout the world, throughout the Middle East, Europe, as well as Africa. This is also the exact same time as Stonehenge. So to give you, to put this in perspective, this is Africa's version of Stonehenge. Again, maybe not quite as pretty to all of you, but really important for a number of reasons, because underneath these large stone cairns, which are carefully built, there are hundreds and hundreds of bodies. And with these bodies, there are thousands of stone and shell beads. The bodies are adorned with all sorts of different um, lion teeth necklace, um, uh, hippotus breastplates, hairdresses made out of hyrax, which is a type of rodent teeth. So sort of a animal farm meets Lord of the Flies animistic culture um, that's decided to hold up shop around Lake Turkana. Now, when we typically think of people who build monuments, we think of things like the pyramids. We think of a large pharaoh ordering his followers to build him an edifice in order to celebrate his power, his glory, his godliness. Typically, when we think about why people build monuments, it's because we think of elites and powerful people. We think about inequality. So I got involved in this project for two reasons. One is I'm interested in the origins of inequality, why it's okay that we wake up in a world, not just a world, but in a state, in a city, in a community, and it's okay that some people make more than others, and those others sometimes can't make ends meet. Sometimes they can't put food on the table. Sometimes they can't afford to college. How is that, you know, why and how do we get to a place where we all normalize this and rationalize this is a question I'm interested in archaeologists because it's not always been like that, right? Um, in fact, um, class-based inequality only emerges about seven to 8,000 years ago. So I study this, this really critical period of time of why, why is that okay or is it inevitable that we have inequality as a, in the world as a civilized community? Quick answer there is no. But that's how I got um, uh, interested in these, because uh, in part, um, when you started looking at these assemblages, each of them are very unique. So you're seeing um, uh, two different burials. Here on the left side, you see um, uh, three purple fluorite beads. There's three um, abazonites um, and a couple just volcanic beads. The next burial over, you see, oh, they threw in some amazonite beads. Those are great. Some bone beads as well over there on the bottom. I threw in a nice carnelian bead. It's a type of chalcedony, a red chalcedony, um, for, for those rock jocks in the audience here today. Um, but each of these are unique. And archaeologists don't think of this in terms of who has more than the other. Uh, the other. These tend to vary by gender. So we can start seeing five years, 5,000 years ago, not only are people thinking about male versus female, they also think about age. So young kids versus adolescents versus adults. Um, rather than just being about inequality. Um, and not only that, that there's a lot of care in the way that people are not just shaping beads. If you look over on the far right of those, again, the rock jocks in the audience may know you're looking at chalcedony. It's a type, 
It's a type of mineral that's very hard, so on the Mohs hardness scale, you can't just sort of shape it into like those cool scrub pendants over there in the center. In fact, if you tried to take an obs a very sharp obsidian blade and carve a hole in it, it would dull your blade entirely. You actually have to put together a little um, silt slurry and very slowly whittle a hole in the center of it, flip it over, and do it. At, and that's why you have, you can see sort of almost a conical shape. It's actually biconical if you flip it around. Um, over there on the bottom, less interesting, those calcites. These aren't just made people making for the dead. People are walking around wearing these. If you take a look at the close-up photo on the right-hand side, you can just see how planar those are. Those were found on a burial of a 50-year-old woman, and she had about 100 pounds of those beads on her. So it's probably not something she walked around with all day long, but it's probably given to her as a tribute. And again, the idea that it's not just a single person that gets this, but it's every member of the community, again, begs that question of what's going on here. And it goes back to that idea of the very first pastoralists. Because instead of having an inequality of rulers, pastoralists move around on the landscape like hunter-gatherers do. They don't live in one place all year long. And as such, they tend to have leaders, but they tend to not have kings or a hereditary inequality. They tend to have a very dispersed power because everybody needs to share. Everybody is important. Um, however, when you first invent pastoralism, all of a sudden, instead of moving around the landscape and hunting and gathering, you're more deeply tied to things like rivers, like good grazing areas. And you have to have a way to come together as a community, not just to talk about specific territories, but also how to recognize that you're like me, you're part of me. I married my son to you. So, you know, and how do you do that? You do that by not just marriages, but having a place where you come together and you share and remember and commemorate. So that's my second um, uh, example, is that Africa is always teaching us to do things about the way we think things happen. My third and last example will be one last story, and I'm going to step out of Africa here for just a second with this one. It's one of my favorite ones of all time. So about 75 years before Columbus, in the grand old year of 1418 to 19, a, a set of um, sailing ships numbering over 30,000 vessels sail forth from China. Um, so um, uh, led by the Admiral Zhen He, because China at that time is trying to get in on what's called the Indian Ocean Trade Network. So since about 500 AD, East Asia, Southeast Asia, um, the Middle East, India, and East Africa have been trading back and forth around the Indian Ocean. Now, when Zhen He gets to India, he sees a giraffe, and he's so impressed. So he's asked, where do you get this from? He's like, oh, of course. It comes from, this, from Malindi. You should go to Malindi in East Africa. So he sails to East Africa where the Sultanate Malindi, and I say Sultanate because this is also a time when Islam spreads not just across Africa, but eventually across the Sahara up into Iberia as well, because who are the people you trust? People that are part of your community as well. Um, uh, so goes to the Sultanate Malindi, who gives two giraffes to the Emperor of China, um, as well as a num um, as well as along with an entourage of people, um, other gifts as well, celebrating their new contacts from Africa. They're trading gold as well as ivory 
Um, and that's how you get lovely paintings like this. Uh, in Confucian tradition, uh, giraffes are th thought of as unicorns. Uh, so there's actually some lovely poetry written about this as well. Um, and in Southern Africa, where I work, um, which are also trading, or which are also a hotspot for ivory and gold, they're also trading. You get the first cities and even kingdoms and inequality in Africa. And again, these are thousands of miles away from the places these objects are going. Two of these cities, uh, Mapungubwe, and the one you probably have heard of, or at least have seen the country name of, is called Zimbabwe, Great Zimbabwe. It's uh, it and its uh, successors, um, the Batua State and um, Kami, are what Black Panther is modeled after of. Um, uh, is a city of not just um, uh, hundreds of acres, but in order to build that city, you just see the aerial right there, it's over one million granite bricks, all of which are dried, laid without mortar. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, walls of 30 plus feet high, um, which is cool. But again, I try to study places where inequality doesn't always happen. So I work further into the interior at a site called Basutswe in the middle of Botswana um, at the edge of the Kalahari Desert. Um, and because at Basutswe, they're also part of this long distance trade network impact. Um, they're trading across the Kalahari to get ivory across and out, so about 1,000 miles out to the ocean, and we've, as well as gold. And here you see bracelets made out of bronze in the upper left-hand corner. In the upper right-hand corner, you have evidence for long-distance trade. Those are glass beads, which are not made in Africa. They actually come from the Middle East and India. So even 1,000 miles into the interior of Africa, we have evidence of, these long distance, of this long-distance trade. I don't have time to get into why inequality doesn't happen at a large site like Basutswe, but what I can leave you with is the fact that we are impacted by the environments we choose to live in. We adapt to them, just like here in Colorado where we don't have as much water getting into the southwest U.S. We know that with greater populations, we all have to work together in order to um, have enough water to make sure wildfires don't go out of control. At Basutsway, they had to create a lot of relationships between surrounding communities, and it resulted in something that archaeologists called a heterarchical society, so one that's built where you have coalitions and power spread horizontally rather than a hierarchical society where you have a king and sort of the elites and the underlings underneath that. Um, so to conclude, I promise just three more minutes of your time and then, is that cool? Okay. I talk fast, but I think I've talked a lot. So um, before I... So, so I'll finish on that by saying, again, that was something I didn't know about. And not only did I not know about that, but I typically don't think of Africa as being connected to the world before the transatlantic slave trade or anything like that. Or knowing that Vasco da Gama, when he sails around Africa in 1500, was just trying to get on this thousand-year-long global trade network and couldn't get over the sea. So the Portuguese try to get over and around Africa, and in fact, actually systematically attack places like um, uh, the successors to Great Zimbabwe, and sometimes create alliances with them um, in order to try to gain control of this trade. So kind of cool stuff. But I've been telling stories, and I promise you it's not just about stories. Archaeologists, to the best that we can, 
We try to be scientific-like um, in our methods. In terms of the methods that we use, we're the duct tape of all professions. We tend to borrow from a bunch of different people who actually know what they're doing. Um, and as well as trying to be, you know, looking for patterns, looking at statistics and what we do. And so I talked about a few different things that I wanted to revisit. One, with the story of Gobero, I was talking about climate a little bit. And for those of you who don't know much about how people reconstruct climates or how I can say that about Gobero, the answer about paleoclimates, so ancient climates, is cores. So archaeologists as well as uh, climatologists um, sometimes bore cores, sometimes um, over miles long, in the ice sheets of Greenland as well as Antarctica from the bottom of the ocean as well as on land, especially depending on what time scale, if you're looking at a couple hundred years, depending on the preservation level. And for Gobero, they actually used ocean cores, and they did so in two, in two respects. One, when there's no vegetation coverage, you have greater erosion, right? And with vast Kalahari um, winds, or sorry, vast Sahara winds, I'm sorry, I work, I work in the Kalahari, Saharan winds, they blow that dust not just over the ocean, it actually even reaches South America to the fact that it's part of the fertility cycle for the Amazon. But some of that sediment starts, um, the particulates start falling into the ocean. And not only that, the general temperature as well as um, uh, temperature and weather patterns impact who's underneath the ocean. So what you're looking at here are a type of plankton called foraminifera. I'll, I'll be testing you on that at the end. Um, it's a type of plankton, just like the goldfish in your office, needs certain types of salinity in the water. You can't put goldfish in salt water. You can't have it be too hot. You can't have it be too cold. It has to be fed just right. So when the ocean changes in terms of its nutrients, in terms of its temperature, you get different types of, of foraminifera species that live. These eventually die out, and since they're tiny little microscopic plankton, not everybody eats them. These gently, slowly begin to accumulate at the bottom of the ocean, and archaeologists have, have actually, you're looking at a certain series of cores, very, very painstakingly counted the different numbers and different types of foraminifera uh, plankton for you to tell you about what the weather was like 10,000 years ago. So fun stuff. Secondly, again, we're in mines territory, and most of you guys know you look, um, you only climb on certain types of rock. You only go to certain types of rock to find. If you're looking for granite and gneiss, you're going to go, you know, over that way. If you want to go find sandstone, you're going to go over there. So I don't need to talk to you about how I would source stones and minerals because different Precambrian deposits. Um, are going to yield certain types of minerals versus others, right? Igneous deposits and whatnot. However, I did want to talk about glass because it's something people make, um, which is kind of cool. And just like when you bake a cake, you make a recipe. And so Indian Ocean glass, uh, just a second. So written records come from uh, the Chinese. They also come through the Arabs. But since we're talking about Africa and Southern Africa, and glass beads. People, in order to make glass, uh, combine sand. They combine silica, silica sand with an alkali flux in order to help bind it together, as well as different additions in order uh, to create different colors. So there's a recipe that people make. And that recipe not only depends on sort of the technology of the time. So when people discover cobalt is great for making blue, 
We know that happens after 1000 AD. Um, but where those, where those um, uh, ingredients come from differs for reasons. So, for example, looking at bead KC4183, um, for those of you uh, following along here, um, uh, one of the major elements in it is um, from the alkali flux that's from magnesium oxide. And the percentage of magnesium oxide in glass sort of depends on whether or not you're using plant ash, so saltwater plants, or if you're using mineral soda in order to create, uh, create that flux. And so looking at the percentage of uh, magnesium oxide, we can tell that this bead actually originated from recipes that come out of the Middle East. And not only that, looking at the parts per million of uranium in these beads, and this is where real science, so chemical analysis via mass spectrometry, comes into play. Parts per million of uranium helps us trace this back not just to the Middle East, but to modern-day Iran, east of the Euphrates, where there's parts of million of uranium in the sand versus west of the Euphrates. So it's a pretty cool fingerprint. Um, and my la very last one, um, and I promise to make this one quick, um, I'm happy to talk about uh, any of this, this stuff, more about Africa, more about doing archaeology as well, is digging holes in the ground, which for any of you who have gardens or have had, had the misfortune of having to plant a tree, takes a really long time to dig a hole. Um, it's even harder if you have to dig square holes and then to take it down like a layer cake systematically. So as archaeologists, we try to minimize that, not only because of time, money, and labor, uh, but also because we destroy whatever we dig up, right? It's no longer in the ground. So technology has advanced. And for those science dorks in the audience, I wanted to let you know that we use uh, near-surface geophysics. So just like a more high-tech, this is uh, looking at the, th this is a complete bastardization of what geophysics is, but it's like a high-tech metal detector, right? You're looking at uh, the chemical properties and the magnetic properties of soils and things either buried underneath the ground. These machines are far too sensitive to detect metals underneath the ground, but burned structures, ancient roads, burials that are underneath the ground. Um, so what you're looking at on the left side is, I worked with a set of geophysics physicists in Botswana to detect the layout of an archaeological settlement. That big sort of center of the daisy there is where the ancient um, uh, animal crowd, this is via magnetic susceptibility for those of you who are taking notes. Um, so impacted by the amount of animal dung, this is where they kept the cattle. And around those, in those little rose petal shapes, and you might see dark spots or at least H's there, those are all houses. And because in magnetic susceptibility you can look at high-intensive human activity, we're actually able to pinpoint down to a sub-meter level where a house is, um, which is pretty cool. And then my very last example, you're going to have to click on the right side, oh, yeah, is that satellite imagery is becoming um, more and more a thing. So here, um, you're looking at some high-resolution multispectral. So high-resolution, you can zoom in on Google Earth and see your car in front of your house, right? So very, very high-tech, high-resolution. Multispectral, we see red, green, blue. There are other spectrums outside of what we can see. So you probably know infrared, maybe for seeing at night, or, of course, UV, because it's about summer and we're all about to get sunburned if we're not careful. Satellites are collecting that data. 
And based on the different types of vegetation, different types of precipitation, you can find archaeological sites that you wouldn't be able to either, one, walk towards because you're walking in the middle of the desert or you're walking in the middle of the rainforest. Or two, like in the image that you can see here, you might be able to pick out a couple big white spots. Um, archaeology sites tend to pop. And so that's another fun way that we find archaeological sites. So thank you for coming tonight. I hope you learned a little bit about Africa that you may not have known otherwise. I'm more than happy. There's a couple really fun, quick, easy reads if you're looking to pick up a summer read, if you're interested in learning more. Um, but other than that, I'll give you guys a break and uh, open it up to questions and hand it over. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll, we'll just take a real quick break. We'll see if we can clean up some more of that beer or anything else you want, and we will come back and do some Q&A. See you in a sec. couple minutes. Thanks. I think people are going to have a lot of questions. All right. We're going to circle back and get some questions. Let's see here. Hmm. I, maybe I do need a whistle. I wish I knew how to whistle. I'm without the ability to whistle. So I'm going to start us back. Onto the Q&A, and I'm going to do it with another gratitude. So um, we find our speakers in lots of different ways. Uh, Carla came to us through a recommendation of one of our previous speakers who is in the audience, and we want to say thank you very much to Dr. Brian Simons for the recommendation. It was really awesome. Appreciated. Yay. We're going to go ahead and go to Q&A. If you don't mind, it would be great to repeat the question so it goes on the podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. All right. Oh, yeah. Um, so a couple fun book recommendations. So if you are really interested in Africa history and prehistory and don't mind lugging around this summer a big, thick book, uh, it's, like, it's like regular size. So I was asked, what is your favorite or what are your favorite books on Africa? There's one um, by a gentleman named John Reeder called Africa, Biography of a Continent. It's thick, but it's also short. Um, it is just lovely. It's written by a journalist, and it's comprehensive from human evolution to modern day. Um, so it's, for as thick as it looks, it's a great quick read. If African archaeology is something, and these ideas of Africa being deeply connected to the world, a slightly, it's, it's slightly more sort of less public audience, um, but like, College, so it's not it's not a difficult read. There's a book called African Connections by Peter Mitchell that remains one of my favorite. And it looks at all these different parts of Africa and how long they've been connected to the world. Um, let's see. Um, there is a couple slides back. I'm going to step over to my computer for a second. If you want the shortest quick read ever, if hearing about glass beads. Uh, or this research, um, sorry, go for it, actually. It was after. One, two more, two more. 
Where did I have it? Oh, yeah. They're at the bottom. Um, so this is going back to the slide of sourcing stones and glass. Um, if you uh, Google my name, uh, Carla Clem, or Google trade tales and tiny trails, uh, <laughs> again, I'll say that three times fast. Trade tales and tr tiny trails. Um, uh, it's a short article that I wrote on uh, what it's like to find small things like glass beads. Um, so those are, those are two quick ones I can think of at the top of my head, and I will come back to you maybe with a third or a fourth. But, um, yeah, oh, one's on Africa, one's on African archaeology, and they're both lovely um, and, like, easily... You, the, the sort of used $3 books are the ones I want. Oh, I do have one other recommendation. There's a book that's, called, that's not specifically on Africa, but if you like the story about the giraffe, uh, it was written by one of my colleagues at University of Texas. Um, that book is called Emperor's Giraffe, The, the Emperor's Giraffe, The Stories of Cultures in Contact. Uh, Sam Wilson is a Caribbean archaeologist, so a lot of it focuses on um, what's now more common knowledge about what the Caribbean was like sort of before and at the time of Columbus, if any of you guys have ever read sort of the Charles Mann books in terms of, you know, 1491, 1493, um, you may have, you know, a sense that our ideas of the Caribbean of South America in um, pre-Columbian pre times have changed. But um, that's a real fun one. They're really quick little, um, uh, little vignettes um, that are easy to digest and fun to read. Question. Could you talk a little bit about what it's like kind of logistically to go to these places and be responsible for bumbling grad students and these things? So what is it like to organize a dig and be in charge of other people's lives? <laughs> well, I am very cool and calm on the exterior when I'm there, and I promise you, my job, my husband calls it the power of negative thinking, is to constantly anticipate things going wrong. So it takes a lot of logistics, actually, to put together um, uh, an archaeological dig. So I, I've run um, uh, digs in Botswana since um, uh, 2000, which was the first, I think 2010 was the first one that I led rather than working on other people's digs. I've worked I've, I've done archaeology both in Africa as well as previously Eastern Europe since 2004. So it depends on how remote the place is, right? So you can do archaeology in Rome, and you're going to rent an apartment for the dig, and everybody is going to have wine in the evenings, and that's lovely. Um, some of the places that I've talked about today um, are far less remote. So there's everything from planning logistics of... Um, having to rent a four-wheel drive car and calculate how much petrol you have for the amount of miles that you'll be putting on it versus next time you're going into town. Uh, I have a several hundred gal gallon uh, drums of water that I also have to sort of think about everything from not just how much people are, how many people I have, how much people drink. Is it going to be washing day for people? Because you can't take a shower every day. We take sponge baths every three or four days. Or every week. You know, it's a sliding scale. It sort of depends on, you know, your degree of smelliness and how disgruntled your fellow archaeological dig members are. So there's a lot of pre-planning that goes into not just... Uh, visiting a place, knowing the sort of environmental hazards, the health hazards, 
uh, the political climate of where you're going to go, the accessibility of um, everything from nearby hospitals. This last um, this last year, I had um, uh, my um, paleoenvironmentalist, so reconstruct ancient environments, got a bad spider bite, we had to take him to the hospital, so making sure I know where everyone is at all times, you know, just like all of you who have kids, you always are always thinking, you know, who's where, what time are they supposed to get back at, you know, making sure there's cars accessible, but, um, you know, doing that at the same time of planning out where to dig, you know, how many people I need to have here, how many people I have to hire, you know, again, do we have enough food, um, Who's been skipping out on cooking duty? You know, because that's going to be a major thing that'll uh, get people at the end. And also, um, smaller, more nuanced things. So things like uh, gender distribution in everything from uh, activities on an archaeology dig, making sure, especially when you're working. Uh, I work with a lot of Botswana people, people from the country of Botswana. So making sure it's not just the women that are doing the washing, or after you dig holes, uh, buckets and load up buckets with archaeological soils, you have to dump those in and you sieve them out. Um, so you have different size grates depending on what sort of artifacts you're looking for. When we're looking at glass beads, we're talking about three to four millimeter size sieves. Um, you make sure that the women also get to do the digging and you get to make you make sure that it's not just those wandering, bumbling grad students or undergrads that are getting shafted in terms of cleaning the latrines or something like that. You make sure that everybody feels, again, equal, included, part of the team, but everybody's learning things. So, um, yeah, so I come back basically from a month of my vacation, as you know, my family often thinks of it, thoroughly exhausted and looking forward to not talking to anyone for at least a two-week period of time <laughs> until I have fully recovered. Um, yeah, other questions? Well, and maybe you knew kind of what you might run into, but um, what's the most surprising thing you've ever dug up? Oh, yeah. So, and I actually had that in the title, what's the coolest thing I've ever found. Oh, um, no, no, I didn't, but I didn't say it. So oh, that, yeah, was, that was a very, very good observation. No. So what is, what is the coolest thing or most surprising thing I've ever found? Um, this actually goes to those glass beads, and I think that was the thing that astonished me the most. One, because they're really hard to pick out, because we're talking about, you, you think of the little necklaces that you wear, and you might pick up uh, the side of the road in Taos, you know, so just a couple millimeters inside, really seed beads. Try to pick that out of a bucket of dirt. It's kind of, one of my analogies for archaeology, it's kind of like fishing, in that you have nothing to do but pass a lot of slow time together hanging out. And, uh, but then you find something really cool. And then the reason why I find um, these... Oh, so these are stone beads. Sorry. Uh, this is uh, centimeters. Um, yeah, so that's... Uh, so these are, these are stone beads. These are also very cool. I can get to this in a sec. But the little tiny glass beads, so it's like later uh, in the Botswana stuff... For me, it was amazing because we're talking a thousand miles into the African interior, over a thousand years ago, thousands of miles from their origins. So these are civilizations at this time. There are, you know, dynasties in China that are happening. There are vast civilizations in India. The people in the middle of the Kalahari have no concept of the emperor of China or the bead factories in India at this point in time. But what they do know, or, or what they're part of, is they're linked up to this global system of trade 
whether or not they want to be, you know. But even on the outskirts, they're very much impacted in terms of not just the growth of cities and the growth of inequality, but also new products and new goods and new ways to think about the world. So even holding those in your hand and trying to imagine what it was like to see these or even why this appealed to somebody, why they got so excited about glass, um, that for me remains, it's not the most like, it's not the Highlander sword that you find on the prince or anything like that. A lot of my archaeology is a little more boring. But, um, but that for me was just a really fascinating sort of reset of the ways that I think about the world. Um, the stone bees are pretty cool, too. That, uh, that idea that people 5,000 years ago wanted to... This is something, these bead assemblages, I bring this up. This is in Kenya 5,000 years ago before pre-dynastic Egypt. This is something you would usually associate with someplace like Egypt, and again, in terms of large kingdoms, right? These are, uh, for, for the rock jocks in the audience, there's Amazonites, there's Florites, I mentioned those. You have some um, uh, other zeolites uh, over there. You have Chalcedonies. You have this like cornucopia of colors, and people, again, moving around the landscape, not sort of sent you know, just wandering around and finding it, these things so important, so appealing that they'll take them, return to these locations, spend hours of their time shaping them into the beads and having their people be so important that they could bury with it. I think that's really cool. So I like beads is my answer. Um, yeah. So um, it's a great question. How do you date? Um, uh, how do you know how old something is uh, so in archaeology? And so the answer is it depends how old. Um, and it has to go often with um, uh, radioactive decay of carbonized materials for the most part. So uh, radiocarbon dating of charcoal, um, so everything from fires, um, either human-made or natural forest fires, that charcoal or other carbonized materials, maybe if you had a nice meal and you had some seeds left over that could carbonize, those actually preserve really well where it doesn't necessarily break down into soil. And you can look at the um, natural decay of carbon, um, which happens at a steady rate. Um, it's something that's scientifically known. Um, and so you can accurately date, for my sort of area now, we can radiocarbon date to about a 20-year accuracy, um, but up to about 50,000 years ago. And the reason why radiocarbon dating uh, ends about 50,000 years ago is because it's carbon. And in that radioactive decay, it only can go so much. So therefore, you have to jump to other methods. So um, uh, uranium dating, uranium series dating is another one for really, really old sites. So getting, um, going back to human evolution, um, volcanic eruptions are, um, you can date tephra. Um, and that's why they know like when Mount, the exact year of like Mount Vesuvius or they're able to tell how old Lucy is, you know, plus or minus sort of she's sandwiched in between a couple different volcanic eruptions that you can date. There's other more sort of like mundane or localized ones. So dendrochronology, you can actually date the rings on trees just as much as you can chop down a tree and tell how old it is. Basically knowing weather patterns and again, I'm glad somebody did this, and it is not me. It's like, it's like ocean cores and ice cores. 
Um, people have series of uh, tree dates, especially here in the U.S., that can extend back thousands of years, where they've lined up one tree that they know was chopped down this year versus one that was chopped down in 1975 versus this, and can overlay and be able to tell based off of the thickness and the numbers of rings and the size of rings when that tree was chopped down. So that is actually something that can be dated, again, to the exact year, which is pretty sweet. Um, there's other ones, too, but, um, yeah, that's what I got. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so uh, the question was um, uh, how, so thinking about globalization and early globalization, how global was Africa? Um, and the answer is pretty gosh darn global. Um, if you think about the way that we typically think or we typically talk about globalization with Europe being the center of the world, right? Either around the Mediterranean, which during the Roman period, of course, involves much of North Africa as well. But um, if you have studied the Romans, you probably also know that the Romans traded with the Egyptians as well. And actually part of the um, uh, late kingdom actually has to do with um, uh, some of the, those intense interactions. But this was a period of time, beginning about 500 AD, where East Africa is trading around a different, very different part of the globe. So I would argue it's not all of the globe, right? Because we don't see the New World in there. We don't see North and South America yet. But what we do see is we see um, uh, the beginnings of, what, three continents, right? If you sort of stick the Middle East in there, or know that the Middle East uh, parts of Central and Eastern Europe are also trading. It's kind of fun going back to sourcing glass beads. Um, some of the new archaeological literature have found some of the Viking beads are Indian Ocean beads. So we're even rethinking, as well as um, beads from Thailand in West Africa. So there's ways that we're rethinking how global and how connected and how worldly other cultures were long before we think of the Europeans going on the age of exploration. I think my, one of my favorite things about Basu da Gama is he got kicked out of India, too. He arrived there in 1500, and uh, they're really used to the sort of ways that they were trading and the series and sets of traders. Yeah, people, like, kicked him out. They would have nothing to do with him. He didn't know anything of the culture. He didn't know anything of the customs. It wasn't just um, you know Europeans marching in with some sort of technological superiority or, or geographic superiority and being able to take over. Um, there's a lot more flux and flow in ancient civilizations, and there's a lot more flux and flow in the connections around the world than we think about. Yeah. Yeah, so sort of flux and flow in terms of agriculture or pastoralists in, in terms of new technology spreading. Um, yeah, so one of the big topics in African archaeology is the spread of um, uh, domesticated animals because as much as we see them in places like East Africa about 5,000 years ago, they don't get down to Southern Africa in until about 2,000 years ago. So it's not 
it's not a 3,000 year march to get down there. So this question about why some technologies spread and where, why people sort of select it, adapt it, maybe um, make a hybrid of it versus, you know, sort of introduce it as, yeah, that's pretty cool. I'm still certain I'm going to go live my life there, but having a few goats is not a bad idea for hard times um, is a, is a really big question. We're also rethinking that. So that uh, it's typically called the Bantu migration, so the spread of agro-pastoralists, so people who both practice agriculture, who have sorghum and millet in Africa, along with domesticated animals, uh, cattle, goat, and sheep. Um, donkeys are also domesticated in Africa, fun fact, um, as well uh, in East Africa really early on. Um, but where and why that happens remains a question. Um, Thinking about milk, um, one thing that we can tell archaeologically, um, not just in Africa but elsewhere, um, uh, two ways you can tell what people are using animals for. So one is we'll look at the what's called the zooarchaeology, so the faunal remains, so the animal bones, just like we like to count things and sort them into little piles. We'll look at not just the different types of animals, so how much, you know, what's the percentage of cattle that we have versus zebra, um, you know, in terms of how dependent people are on domestication. We'll also look at things like age of slaughter or sex, uh, because if any of you guys are farmers, we've grown up a farm, been to a farm, I, um, I volunteer at a goat dairy farm. You'll know that if you are having goats for milking, you're going to want most of your herd to be female goats. And the male goats, you're either going to you know, slaughter when they get old enough to make good meat or sort of give them away. So we can actually tell archaeologically as well whether or not people are raising animals for meat consumption or for uh, secondary products, so milk or um, uh, for, like, uh, sheep for wool and in order to make cloth. Um, what other... Oh, and the other way you can tell is, um, uh, it is via bioarchaeology, looking at the health of individuals. One fun fact, here in North America, after people domesticate corn, corn has a lot of sugar, and there are other various domesticates that we often don't know about, some of which have been actually lost um, uh, of different North American grains. But after people start eating uh, corn teeth get terrible. The amount and percentage of cavities just go through the roof. So there's a lot of literature on just how terrible corn is because it's not just sort of the mashing of hard grains together. It's also what you're either getting calorically, so we can also test the health of people based on like things like osteoporosis, um, uh, but also sort of the counting the sort of number and degrees of, ca- of calories. And of course, you know, if you don't go to the dentist, and you do get a tooth infection and you don't take care of it, you can get sick and potentially eventually die. And so that's also a big issue um, archaeologically as well. Yeah. Cool. Yes. This might be a really bad question, so don't answer it. Um, but for at least the last several hundred thousand, or several hundred years, I think about it, it's really exploited on the other continent. But slavery and colonialism, if you go back this far, Yeah, so how, how deep is, how deep time-wise is 
um, uh, the exploitation of Africa, if we think about Africa today, uh, via other exterior powers, both colonialism and even in a post-colonial era. Um, and, you know, do, do we see that back in the Indian Ocean trade? You know, how much autonomy? And is there a reason why that happens? And I think that's always, uh, as an Africanist, that's a question that I always get. You know, again, Africa is not a country, but people will often ask that Occam's razor question of why is Africa the way it is today, right? You know, just uh, uh, grossly speaking, like grossly in, you know, not a terrible way, but just in a all-encompassing short answer way. Um, so uh, going back to your question, so 500, 1,000 years ago, so although um, uh, the um, transatlantic slave trade, which there's actually slavery um, in and around the uh, Indian Ocean as well, as well as within Africa, there are different types of slavery where it's not necessarily your kids' kids, your kids and your kids' kids and your kids' kids will be slave owners by this particular person. Um, sometimes you could get integrated in the society. Sometimes it's to pay a debt. There's, there's a number of different reasons why it happens. Um, but that entire, the entire process of um, uh, transatlantic slavery, uh, sometimes there's a lot more sort of autonomy and involvement rather than exploitation than we typically think about. Um, in Atlantic Africa. So there are actually uh, slave societies and kingdoms based on the slave trade in West Africa um, to, to a degree where, um, I like this, there's uh, the kingdoms of uh, Dahomey and Huera, so in modern-day Benin in West Africa. Um, the, they were so actually in control of the trade rather than we think of the Europeans and the Europeans coming in and raiding or going to this place that um, when the Europeans would arrive, um, they basically forced competition. They, they pitted the Portuguese against the Dutch, against the French. Um, they had to leave their ships at the shore. They had to sometimes walk like 50 miles into the interior, you know, again, and leave their weapons to go into the city where they would then be placed in the center of the city in these, like, sort of hovels that were sort of built in amongst ditches. There's barricades all around them. Barricades built out of former Portuguese ships, mind you, just to sort of create that mental image, you know, in order to have access to this trade. So um, it still results in millions of enslaved Africans um, leaving the continent and completely um, that population decimation, the degree of... um, political uncertainty and warfare that went hand-in-hand within the interiors of Africa and the vast restructuring that happens during the transatlantic slave trade um, deeply impacts um, Africa, not during colonialism, but even resonates to today. However, it's a, it's a more complicated story than we typically think about. At this point in time, you don't really get that, especially by sort of external powers. You don't have colonization by the Arabs or by Indians of, um, of East Africa. So the Swahili and that language uh, that we typically think of for Kenya and for um, Tanzania is part of this culture. Um, you have people moving back and forth between places like Oman and India. If you ever have gone to the Kenyan coast, you may have had a lot of curry with the fish. Um, there are a lot of Indian influences from these contacts, but that wasn't conquered and it wasn't Uh, uh, Arabs coming to Africa and spreading their knowledge. A lot of the knowledge about how to make iron 
Um, a, lo a lot of the seers, those are all African-born, um, besides these being African-based civilizations. Um, a lot of the technological uh, innovations um, are actually African-born. Um, and so to get back to that larger question of why Africa is like it is today, um, a lot of it has to do with resonance, uh, resonances of colonialism um, in various ways. And that goes to sort of long-term restructuring of how politics operates at, uh, at a country level and those sort of political voids and, who, and where and how uh, money was distributed. Botswana is a great case study in that not happening in that... Um, uh, because it's mostly the Kalahari Desert, it's a very poor place, um, or at least it was. People had a bunch of scrappy cattle, kind of like in New Mexico. You know, it's just you can't do much with it. And so the Brits were actually very hand off. It was a British uh, protectorate. Brits were very hand off. Um, just used it to sort of be a buffer from the Germans in Angola. They were interested in their money makers in South Africa and Zimbabwe, and. Uh, so when it came time for the post-colonial era in 66, when uh, Botswana got independence, um, sort of a couple things happened is they, they argued like, look, we don't have money, but we're self-sustaining and we're happy. And um, sort of hand in hand with that went, one, the fact that the first president was also, it created issues for independence. He was um, married, he was from Botswana, he was married to a lady from the UK. Um, and then two, at the same time you had, um, uh, the discovery of diamonds a year later, so you had a lot of new wealth come in, but a very stable political structure, and it means that Botswana, if you guys ever want to travel to Africa, it is a lovely place that is the most politically and economically stable country in all of Africa. So it's a varied story, um, uh, but and a, and a great summer sm box office smash hit called A United Kingdom. It's all about the marriage of Sir Surat Sekama to his oh. wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, Ladies' number one detective agency um, is also a book series and a very short-lived uh, video series about Botswana as well. If you are looking for some fun, wholesome movies that are not about neither about animals nor warfare, and include Africa, I recommend them both. Um, and I think that's probably it. Again, my answers are long, so I want to open up just in case there is one last-minute question. Yeah. Yeah, so um, uh, the question was thinking about um, sort of the colonization of Africa as well as um, sort of technological advancements, things like steel and guns or railroads, you know, and thinking about the colonization of Africa, you know, it, the question is if Africa was that advanced, why was that so easy? And so there's a couple things there. And that's one reason why we, we study Africa and um, uh, try to bring these stories to the fore, because these are often sometimes misconceptions. So this idea of guns, germs, and steel, the very popular Jared Diamond book, that most of you uh, have likely heard about the idea that the technological innovation specifically from Europe was, a way, was the reason why Europe was able to conquer the new world or conquer places like Africa. 
once you start entering in archaeology and looking and picking apart each of those case studies, they actually aren't as simple as that. There's often many reasons why, for example, the Inca wasn't just conquered by you know a couple men with horses and steel. Um, there's internal warfare and conflicts over who's mad at who and who's aligning with who. Um, there are various flux and flows of different civilizations, just like coming in at the end of the Roman Empire. It's a lot easier for invaders from the east to come in to what was formerly a grand empire, right? So there's a lot of flux and flow to civilizations. It's not always about what technology you have here in North America. A lot of it relates, um, again, to um, uh, disease. Um, but the story of Africa is particularly complex, and I can't give you an easy, quick answer. But please know it actually took Europeans hundreds of years uh, before they had any sort of reasonable foothold, over 300 years, 350 years. And even then, there was areas outside of different European powers control that they were never able to sort of harness under the colonial empire. So you think of it as them stomping in and people opening their doors or them being able to defeat. Again, those Portuguese were kept on the shore. Their boats were on the shore. Their weapons were on the shore. Um, uh, in and across Africa, the, the amount of Africans that went to Europe before our idea that Africans were backwards or othered, you know, is something that only really happens during the 1800s when things like ideas of racial superiority start to emerge sort of in European literature. So it's more complex. There's a lot more going on to Africa, and they didn't give up that easily. Cool. And thank you so much, guys. Many thanks to Dr. Clem and to Wendy Saddle. If you have a chance to drop off your stuff in one of the bins on your way out, that would be super awesome. And I hope we see you next month. Thank you for supporting Golden Beer Talks. Thank you.